right, this is the first the time I'm the this. iPhone <laughs> and my nemesis. That means I can't play with it. Class. Ooh. <laughs> Everybody records. We might keep it on Tuesdays just for that. Because <laughs> he can't come, that means you'll have to record it. You can't play. Did you turn it so it doesn't start making all kinds of buzzings and things during the year? You won't. Okay. Shouldn't buzz. You're going to get the emails and texts and things. Okay. All right. No, because it... So anyway, the, the point of the seven traits of being a man was to really understand our potential. That was really... The point of seven traits of being a man was to really concretize for myself, for you that joined us, what it means that, to be a man. That's really what it was, because the understanding of the Jewish people, the understanding of Judaism, and the understanding of the Torah, those are all the same, is our potential is unlimited, i.e., we can change the world. That's what it means to be a man, is to take responsibility to change the world. That's what Judaism understands. And the second series in that, Understanding those seven traits and understanding that really not only we can change the world, but we're obligated to change the world, that we're responsible to change the world, and we have the power to change the world. To understand that is really what it, under, is the beginning of the understanding of what it means to be a man in this world. This second... The second... He's now begging that someone records it because I didn't respond. <laughs> He's literally begging on text message. Um, the second series in that... <laughs> I, I'm gonna, uh, the question now is, is, this is being recorded, do I respond just so he stops or do I see how many times he begs? <laughs> We're up to three now. <laughs> so... The second series is to take a look at the epitome of that concept. Who, who lived that reality? Who embodied what Judaism says it means to be a man? And there is no better place, in my opinion, to look, to begin. I mean, there are many examples. Certainly, I'm sure everyone in this room could think of examples. And each one might come up with a different example. But there is no better place to begin than the one man who changed the world more than any other human being that ever lived. One man literally embodied what it meant to be a man and took responsibility for the world. And that's Abraham. Abraham literally took responsibility for the world. We will see that time and time again as we go through the life of Abraham. We don't have the time in this series, as, as you've seen in my recent doings, I like doing series. I truthfully don't know how many this series will be. This is the first time. I, it is an unknown because there are so many stories to do. I don't, and we will not be able to do all of them, and we will not exhaust the life of Abraham. But what I'd like to do is pinpoint several stories that literally give you the overview of the seven traits of being a man because he embodied that. He took responsibility for the world and changed humanity forever. He changed humanity. Before Abraham came into existence, the entire world believed, lived, 
and sought out idolatry. No one, literally no one, with the exception of few individuals, no one took the responsibility to say that that was a mistake and that the world was not about that until Abraham came along. And the whole world now, in terms of certainly the Western world and certainly the Muslim world, but the dominant part of civilization is all an outspring of what he brought into the world. The Judeo-Christian concepts and the Muslim concepts, which is the majority of the world, all comes from the concepts that Abraham brought into the world. With that, I'd like to begin. And see, what was, who remembers of the seven traits? What was the first one? Five-finger clarity. Five-finger clarity. Of the seven traits, the first one we said was five-finger clarity. And what did that mean? What did that mean, five-finger clarity? No, you can change the world. Yeah, five-finger clarity. No, you can change the world. But literally, five-finger clarity was on everything. Five-finger clarity meant have five-finger clarity for all the concepts and the ideas that you have in the world, just like you know you have five fingers on your hand. You don't have to think about it. You know it's true that you have five fingers. So if you had to sum up again in another phrase, and this time I'm going to use a different phraseology, because this is the first lesson that we are taught about Abraham, and it is the first lesson of what it means to be a Jew, and that is know what you know. Don't believe what you know. Don't have faith in what you know. Know what you know. Have five-finger clarity on what you know to be true. That is the first lesson that we're going to be taught about Abraham. It is the first lesson of what it means to be a Jew. Two more introductions on that note, and then we're going to see the story. <laughs> because there are two things. The first one is, there are two ways that we can live life. There are really two ways that we can walk through this thing called life. We can walk through this life feeling our way, and that's from an emotional response to the world, or we can walk through this world based on our decisions from an intellectual perspective. That makes sense? Those are really the only two ways. Now, the truth is, is there's always going to be a combination of them. No human being, as much as as much as we like to make fun, and you know, this is a class of being a man, as much as we like to make fun of the difference between men and women, and women are emotional, men are intellectual, no human being is purely intellectual, and no human being is purely emotional. What we're discussing is which one plays the lead role. That's what we're discussing, which one plays the lead role. And when it comes to being a Jew, and when it comes to being a man, the lead role is and should be the intellectual approach. We should live life based on decisions, not emotions. That's the first thing. The second thing is that if you had to divide the Torah into three parts, even though it's five books, my own personal take on the Torah, there are three lessons, general lessons, that the Torah gives us. The first lesson that the Torah gives us, and this is from the story of creation until we get to Abraham, is 
What does it mean to be a human being? The lessons that the Torah teaches in the story of creation all the way up until Abraham are universal. Those are lessons that apply to every human being. Every human being. Every human being lives in the Garden of Eden. And every human being has the snake to deal with. And every human being has that struggle. And every human being has the struggle of Cain and Abel. The struggle of greed versus meaning. Every human being. Noah. Noah. The struggles that Noah went through. That's every human being. So the first thing that the Torah speaks about is what does it mean to be a human? From Abraham until the time of Jacob and his sons, until the Jewish people go down to Egypt, the Torah is now telling you what does it mean to be a Jew? Because that's the lesson of Abraham. What does it mean to be a Jew? From the Jewish people in Egypt and onwards, well then it's what does it mean to be a Jew within the context of the Jewish people? And even though in the Torah there are individual mitzvahs, every individual mitzvah is only within the framework of being part of the Jewish people. Abraham is the beginning of what does it mean to be a Jew. And that's what we're discussing when we discuss what does it mean to be a man. We're talking about the Jewish concept of being a man. Okay? If you want, open up your books to page 55. This is the introduction to Abraham. This is the first time we're seeing him. Literally, the very first time that the Torah is introducing Abraham to us. Now, that's a little misleading, because if you just turn back a page, actually two pages, if you turn back two pages to page 51, and you look at line 26, we are... There is, Abraham is mentioned. See, Terah had lived 70 years. He gave birth. He begot Avram, Nahor, and Haran. When we are first introduced to Abraham, Avraham, he is not Avraham yet. He is Avram. His name will be changed, and we will see that. Now, these are the generations, the chronicles of Terah. Terah begot Avram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran gave birth to Lot. Haran died in the lifetime of Terach, his father, in his native land, in Ur Kazdim. And Avram and Nahor took themselves wives. The name of Avram's wife was Sarai, which will later become Sarah. We will not see that, but that's another name change that takes place. This is not the life of Sarah, this is the life of Abraham. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. Maybe someone wants to put together a class for the women. What does it mean to be a woman? And they'll start with Sarah. The daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. And Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terach took his son Avram, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of Avram, his son, and they departed with them from Orkastim to go to the land of Canaan. They arrived at Canaan, they settled there. The days of Terach were 205 years, and Terach died in Haran. So you see that, I flew through that because you see that I don't want you to think that I'm misleading you when I say that this is the first time we're introduced to the main Abraham. He was mentioned. But you see clearly when you read that along with me as I flew through it, but hopefully you were able to follow, you see that it was a parenthetical mentioning. It was a very parenthetical mentioning. He was not, there was nothing in detail there about him. This is the first time that we are told about Abraham. Now, some of you might be familiar before we read this, there is a story that we're told. Anyone familiar with this story, just, you know, Indulge me to tell it to those people that might not be. See, because this story that we're about to be told is well on in Abraham's life. 
Abraham is in his 70s when this is happening. There's a story that we are told of Abraham when he was a little child. There's lots of stories. See, you know, in, in, in American culture, we grow up with stories, right? Everyone here in the Little Red Riding Hood, hey, George Washington chopped down the cherry tree. We grow up with these stories. They're called American consciousness. I don't even know if they grow up with them anymore. I, I think America is losing its conscious, its self-awareness, but that's, a, that's besides the point. When I do... Oh! Noah! Everyone, this is Noah. Hey, Noah. Noah, this is everyone. You'll meet everyone after class. <laughs> Grab a seat. So, I think that... I, I think that America is losing its self-awareness, but in, in just like in American culture, you have these stories of what's called American consciousness. In Judaism, we also have stories that we are told. They're not stories that are in the Torah. They're stories that are told to us outside the Torah. And these are stories that we are told to children. You go up to any Jewish kid, any of my children that they're old enough to know stories, will know the following story. They all know it. It's taught to children. It's part of our consciousness. And it's a story about Abraham when he was a young child. Now Abraham, when he was a young child, you have to understand who his father was. Abraham's father was the Bill Gates of idols. He was the Bill Gates of idols. He owned the largest manufacturing factory of idols. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine living in those times? I mean, that's what it would be like. It would be like being the son of Bill Gates. The largest manufacturer of idols in that time. Was, was, that was their computer. That was their everything, the, the idols. And one day, and Abraham, from a little boy, started to realize that this is ridiculous. Abraham, from a little boy, started to realize that this whole idolatry stuff is nonsense. How can people believe this stuff? And he started to get frustrated by it. One day, his father went away on a business trip and left this young boy, Abraham, in charge. He says, watch after the store. Watch after the factory. You know, anyone know this story? Everyone knows the story? No, okay, good. I don't want to waste my time for everyone to know it. But since you don't, they have to listen. So... Abraham's father went away. And his father says, watch the factory. And Abraham, okay, fine. He's a little frustrated by the whole experience, but nonetheless. And the reason that he's a little bothered is Abraham already started from a young age realizing that this is nonsense and started telling people. Started telling people this is nonsense. And, you know, his father was getting a little concerned. And the king, Nimrod, we'll find out about him soon, was also a little concerned about... Abraham's father's son. So one day he goes away, and sure enough, after his father goes away, a person comes to the factory, knocks on the factory and says, I want to give a gift to the idols. Today is my birthday, and I want to give a gift that I live to this age to my idols. And Abraham says, how old are you? And the man says, I'm 40 years old today. And Abraham says to him, A man who turns 40 wants to give thanks to something that is one day old? It was made this morning. And you want to give thanks to it? The man got angry and walked away. I'll go to the the smaller shop down the street. I don't need to be insulted on my birthday. And so he went down the street. Some time later, an old woman comes. An old woman comes to the factory and wants to give thanks to the gods. And she needs to pray to the gods. Something is coming up and she needs to pray to the gods. She needs help. And so Abraham goes, well, all right, which god do you want? 
Well, you, you said you need help, and she says, I want the most powerful one. I need a lot of help. I need the strongest, most powerful idol. And at this point, after a full day of people coming up to Abraham like this, he got so angry. He says, all right, we'll get you the strongest one. And he walks over and he picks up an axe. And he starts walking through the factory, smashing the idols with the axe. Until he left one. And he left one and he went over and he dropped the axe by its feet and said, that's obviously the strongest one, last man standing. <laughs> and the woman obviously was distraught and left. Well, Abraham's father comes home at the end of the day and he walks in and he sees what happened. And he goes to Abraham, what, what happened here? And Abraham said, this woman came, she wanted to give an offering to the gods and she said she wanted to give to the most powerful God. And that God said, I'm the most powerful. But the one standing next to him says, no, I'm the most powerful. And the one behind them says, no, you two are wrong. I'm the most powerful. And an argument broke out amongst the idols. And they started fighting. And a war broke out in the factory. And, I, I was, and that was the last one standing. And you laugh. And Abraham's father looks at him and says, what do you, what do you, what do you think, I'm crazy? <laughs> they're wood, they're stone. They can't do anything. And Abraham looks at his father and he says, if only your ears could hear what your mouth is saying. If only your ears. You don't even believe in this stuff and yet you're selling it to people. You don't even believe in this stuff and yet you're the one distributing it and promulgating it into the world. Well, Abraham's father was a little taken by this and he was actually very scared because and it's a little difficult to understand the exact nuances of the story, but there was a prophecy that was given to Nimrod that one of Abraham's siblings, i.e. his father, one of his father's children, wasn't said which one, but one of his father's children was going to overturn the world. That was the prophecy. And what Nahor and, uh, and Nimrod understood that to mean is a bad thing. They're going to overturn the world. Uh, you know, like a Stalin or a Hitler come along and they overturn the world. That's not a good thing. So they thought that it was a bad thing. And then when Abraham was born, the prophet said, the one who's going to overturn the world has been born. And so Nimrod went to Nahor and said, what child do you have that's just been born? He's going to be the one to turn over the world. We need to kill him. And so Nahor, Abraham's father, got scared and he lied. And he says, no child was born. And he hid Abraham in a cave for three years. He was hidden in a cave until he was old enough to come out, and they figure, all right, he's a toddler now, he's a little boy, they're not going to remember that he's the one that they, they, they'll think that he was just around already. You know, they, they, they figure, all right, no, they're, they're waiting to see a baby, because they said he was just born, they're waiting to see a baby, so they let him out after three years. And now, all of a sudden, Abraham does this, his father realizes, oh my God, the prophecy's right. He's going to shut down my family. This, this, this is a rebellious child. Who made the prophecy? Nimrod's uh, prophet seekers, the stargazers. He was right. Yeah, he was right. <laughs> he was right. Prophecy's real. We believe in that stuff. We believe in stargazing. We believe in all that stuff. There's just not really anyone alive today that really knows how to do it. And those that do, they're very quiet. The ones that have the sign over there, you know, doorstop on Melrose Ave, those, <laughs> those aren't the real ones. You know, the ones that are real, they're not out talking about it. They're certainly not on Fox TV. So... <laughs> So sure enough, though, 
Nahor, Abraham's father, starts to get nervous. And he thinks, my God, the prophecies are right. And he turns Abraham over to Nimrod, to the king. He turns him over to the king. And the king says to Abraham, what are you doing? And Abraham says, I don't believe in idols. I believe in one God. And that was, that was sacrilegious back then to say such a thing. And Nimrod says, that's nonsense. You're going to bow down to a God right now, one of our gods, or we're going to kill you. And they made a pit of fire. And they said to Abraham, pick a God to bow down or we're going to throw you in this pit of fire. And Abraham says, I can only bow down to the one true God. And Nimrod says, that's ridiculous already. You're going to bow down to the fire God or we're going to throw you into the fire. And so Abraham, very brilliant individual, says, okay, fine. I'll bow down to the fire God. And just as he's about to bow down, he says, wait. Now that I think about it, I can't bow down to the fire God. I mean, if I'm going to bow down to a God, it better be the right one. I should bow down to the water God. I mean, what's stronger, fire or water? The water can put out the fire. So I should bow down to the water God. So Nimrod says, okay, fine, bow down to the water God. And Abraham says, okay. Oh, wait a minute. Nah, I can't bow down to the water God. I should bow down to the wind God. I mean, what's wind is more powerful than water. It moves it from place to place to place. The wind takes water from point A to point B. And Nimrod says, okay, fine, bow down to the wind God. And then Abraham says, nah, I can't bow down to the wind God. I mean, you and I are more powerful than the wind God. We can hold back the wind. And he holds his breath. And he says, you see, we're more powerful than the wind God. At which point Nimrod realized that Abraham was mocking him. And Abraham says, enough. Enough. You're going to bow down to the fire God or we're going to throw you in the fire. At which point Abraham says, no. He says, no. And they throw him in the fire. And a miracle happens. And he survives. And he's brought out of the fire. And that story, as I mentioned, that's a story that we are told about Abraham that's in Jewish consciousness. That Abraham was thrown into the pit of fire. But that story is not in the Torah. This is the first story that we are introduced to as Abraham. In the Torah itself. On page 55, it says, Everyone have the place? Abraham said, Hashem says to Avram, Go for yourself from your land, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, then you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who curses you I will curse. And all the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you. The story goes on, but that's all we're going to look at today. That's it. We're just going to look at that. God comes to Abraham and says, Leave. Leave this land and go to a new land, and there I will make you a great nation. You will become the father of nations. Now, does anyone see two immediate problems in that verse? Two immediate problems. Have you and I done this before? I didn't know the answer. Ah, okay. That's fine. You know, there'll be a twist on it. Like related to the way God said it to him? A, related <clears throat> to the way God said it, and B, just the fact that God said it. One of the things the order. Okay. One of the things is the order. What's wrong with the order? Now I'm going to reread it and I'm going to translate literally. Literally, it says, I want you to go for yourself 
from your land, from where you were born, doesn't say from your relatives in Hebrew. If anyone knows Hebrew, they can look inside and tell everyone that I'm correct. It says, from your land, from where you were born, from your father's house. Yeah, Nouriel, what's wrong with the order? Uh, in regards to, I guess, scope, it goes from largest to smallest. Well, okay, but I don't know if that's necessarily the wrong order. So why, just because it's goes from largest well, to smallest, just, maybe you can go from smallest to largest. Just uh, in regards to how a person travels, they first uh, leave the house. Just not... in terms of actual reality, when a person leaves, where's the first place they leave when they leave as we grow up in life? The first place you leave when you grow up. Anyone here still living with their parents? Yeah, we got two here. Okay? They haven't left their parents' home yet. You three have left your parents' home. That's the first place you leave. Where's the second place you leave? Hey, where were you born? Orange County. Orange County. Where were you born? Oh, you're up north, though. Right? You're San in San, San Diego. Okay, didn't work here. Because right? <laughs> when you left your parents' home, you happened to also have left where you were born as well. But very often, you can leave your parents' home and just move into the same city. You don't have to leave the city, do you? No. So you can leave your parents' home but stay where you were born. Those three left where they were born. But yet, did you move to Israel? Did you move to England? Did you move to Canada? God forbid. <laughs> no, but you've left. You've left where you were born, but you haven't left your land. You're all American. You're still in America. Now, if you decide to move to another country, at that point, you've left your land. So you see, logistically speaking, it's out of order. But there's another problem. Yeah, what's the other problem, Jason? That was the problem I was thinking. Ah, I told you it'd be a little twist. What's the other problem? The first problem is it's out of order. God says to Abraham, leave your land. And I want you to leave your land and your place where you were born and your father's house. And it's in the reverse order as if you would leave. If he would leave, the first place he'd leave is his father's house. The second place he would leave is where he was born. The third place he'd leave is his land. And even if he did it all at once, like you three did, you'd, but you'd still do it in that order. What's the second problem? It was more of a statement, not so much as a... No, it's a command. Go. Okay. Well, the second problem is, is we already read the introduction. I said this is the first time we are introduced to Abraham. However, there was just a narrative that spoke about Abraham. And in that narrative, what did we see happen? Abraham already left. He's already gone. He already left where he was born. He was born where? In Ur-Kazdim. And they left Ur-Kazdim to go to Canaan. And they stopped in Haran. But they've already left. <laughs> There's two problems here. The first problem is it's out of order. The second problem is he's already left. Abraham has already left his birthplace. He's already left. He's certainly left his father's house. He's already left his birthplace, yeah. Maybe he's Talking to leave more in like a, a metaphoric. Oh, very good, Aaron. Um, like clearly, the idea. Of clearly, clearly, 
Abraham cannot be being told to leave a physical place. Clearly can't be. And that's because of the problems that we enumerated. The first problem is he's already physically left. The second problem is it's out of order in terms of the physical departure. Unless Abraham is being told to leave something much, much different. And that is Abraham is being told the very first lesson. We're going to speak about Abraham and we're going to see that Abraham is being taught lesson after lesson after lesson. And who remembers one of the seven traits? One of the seven traits, I believe it was number six. What was number six? Uh, that's the last one. Patience to persevere. The patience to persevere. Because why? The first time you try something, what's going to happen? You're going to fail. The second time, you're going to fail. The third, the fourth, the fifth, the seventh. We even spoke out a concept that a righteous person falls seven times. Remember that? A righteous person falls seven times. A non-righteous person falls once. By definition, the only way you can become great is by making mistakes. Abraham is not necessarily going to make mistakes, but what it means is the only way to become great is through trial and tribulation. Through trial and tribulation is what makes a person great. Those that have never tried and never accomplished anything. What makes a person great, what makes a man, is through trial and tribulation. And Abraham is going to go through test after test after test after test. That's going to make him great. And the very first test is this one. The very first test that Abraham is being taught is this one right here. And we're going to see two aspects of this test. The very first aspect is what we discussed when we began. Know what you know. Know what you know. Five finger clarity. Know what you know. See, you have to understand and appreciate. If we were born in a different part of the world, to a different family, to a different religion, we would not be sitting here learning with a rabbi. We would be sitting here learning perhaps with a different religious leader. If we were born in Iraq, we would think the way an Iraqi thinks. Just because we were born there. Pre-Civil War, if you were born below the Mason-Dixon line, then you thought slavery was right. And if you were born north of the Mason-Dixon line, you thought slavery was wrong. It was that simple. We have to appreciate that so much of the way we look at life is not because we ever thought about it, not because we ever came to a conclusion, and not because we ever even clarified for ourselves what we know to be true, simply, that's the way we were told was true. And Abraham is being told, you want to know what the first lesson of being a man is? You have to know what's true. Because as I said, there are only two ways to go through life. Through decisions or through feelings. And if we don't have the clarity of knowing what we know to be true, then by definition, what we are doing is feeling our way. I'll prove it to you. Is anyone here not a good person? Are you a good person? 
<laughs> Wise answer. Wise answer. He's too old to, I shouldn't have picked him first. I picked him first because of his age. I thought that he would understand, but, but the problem is he's too wise because of his age. <laughs> if we were to go around the room with the exception of him and ask, are you a good person? Every single one would say yes. Tell me, can you define good? <laughs> then how do you know you're a good person? Because you want to be a good person. You like the way it sounds. You don't like the way the other sounds. You don't like the way the other sounds. I don't like the way that sounds. I'm not a good person. Of course I'm a good person. I don't like the sound of that. Well, watch this one. Are you an intellectual? Of course. Of course. <laughs> because I don't like the way the other one sounds. I'm not an intellectual. Can you define an intellectual? You see, if you don't have a definition, then you just have no choice but to go with the way you emotionally respond to something. Well, that's the true about everything. If we don't have the clarity and conviction to say this is true, then we have no choice but to emotionally connect with that which we want to be true. And what Abraham is being told is these three things you've got to leave behind. You've got to leave behind the awareness of right and wrong based purely on these three things. Don't leave behind the right and the wrong. You might have values that are correct. And it might be correct, the values that you have. But if the only reason that you connect to those values is because of these three things, then you've got to leave it behind. And that's why it's in the perfect order. Because you want to know where the most basic fundamental places that we get our values from? Well, the most basic and most fundamental way we get our values from is what? By the time each one of us was five years old, our personality was so concrete that it's almost inevitable that that's the way we will be unless we actively, willingly, and through hard work change. And ask any parent that. <laughs> By the time each one of your children was five, you saw who they were. And that challenge just kept coming back and back and back. You know why that is? Because we got that from our home. How many of us have said, how many of us have said, and don't answer this because he's in the room, how many of us have said, I'm not going to end up being like my dad. I won't do that. I'm not going to act that way when I become an adult. Well, guess what? Inevitably, you know what we find? We end up doing exactly what we said we won't do. Because it's so ingrained in us by our upbringing as to what we think is valuable. You know what the one of those common areas of conflict in marriage is? Ridiculous things that we think are right just because that's the way it was in our parents' home. <laughs> no, that's the way it was done in my home growing up, so that's the way it is. It's unbelievable. Because that is the most profound way that we get the molding of how we look at life. You know where the second way we get is? See, each one of us looks at life very different. You look at life very different than I do. Because you're a Cass, and I'm a Denbo. <laughs> and you look at life very differently than he does. And he looks at life very differently than you do. And you, because each one of us comes from a very unique family. And the only two that are in this room that are probably more similar are those two, because they're both Ramin. 
That's why they're sitting together looking at us like, you guys are crazy. Because <laughs> they're the majority. We're minorities. They're two. We're all individuals. But guess what? Each and every one of us looks at life very, very differently than if there was a guy from Philadelphia sitting here. Yeah. But guess what? I'm from the East Coast. And so a lot of times, you guys look at life very, very differently than I do. Because I'm from the East Coast, and you're all West Coast. But that's, that's where we're born. See, there's the first place we get our values from, and the way we look at life is from our father's home. Our family that ingrains in us our views of life. The second way is where we grow up. That's what it means, where you were born. Where you grow up. You get a certain view of life just based on you grew up there. And that's why I said if any one of us grew up in China, we would look at life very, very differently. We're so naive, those of us who were born and raised in America, because we think that this is the way the world looks at things. And it's only the time, the very first time that we actually get in a plane and go to another country without being a tourist, that we realize that the rest of the world doesn't look at life the way we look at it. Because when we're a tourist, we get there and we get, we get, uh, we get literally, I don't know what the, 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 the we get um, enraged almost when, when they don't treat us with the customer relations that we expect them to treat us with. We're Americans. You should look at it. Customer's always right. And you go to a foreign country and they have a very different perspective. <laughs> a very different perspective. And therefore, if someone from France was sitting in this room, we would look at life very, very differently than he would. You see that? Well, these are three ways that we all get our values from, simply because that's the way we were brought up. Our family, the way we grew up, and wherever we happen to live at that moment. Because if each and every one of us moved to a foreign country, if you would move to Europe, God forbid, or if you would move to Israel, God willing, in time, you would start to look at life like they do. Because that's where you live now. Now, of those three places in which we get our values from, which is the easiest to go? Your family, where you grew up, or where you happen to live at the moment? Huh? Where you happen to live at the moment. That's the easiest to get rid of. Because, like I said, if you were to move to another country, slowly, you would adapt to that. But you know what would be very difficult to get rid of? You were born and raised in Northern California. No? Down here? Yeah. Oh, because well, I keep thinking Davis. Because I lived there for so long. Right, you lived there for so long, and that's exactly the point. If you, <laughs> no, that's the point. But you never get rid of it. would be much more difficult. That's the point. So you become like a Northern Californian. Just because you live there. But what's still deeper is the fact that you were born and raised wherever you were born and raised. Now you can slowly get rid of that, but what's even deeper than that? Your family. And that's why it's in the exact correct order. Abraham is being told, if you want to live a life of value, if you want to be a man and know what you know, five-finger clarity, you know what the first lesson you have to ask yourself is? How do I know that this is true? How do I know that this is a value? How do I know that this is right? 
Do I say that this is right simply because that's the way I was born? Do I say that this is right simply because that's what my parents did? Do I say this is right simply because that's what the society around me does? Or do I say that this is right because I know it's right? That's called five-finger clarity. And that's the very first lesson that we are told about being a Jew. The very first lesson we are told about being a Jew is know what you know. Five-finger clarity. It's the first lesson that we are taught about Abraham. Now, the second aspect of this in the few minutes we have remaining is, let me ask you a question. Why is this the first story that we are told about Abraham? Why isn't the other story the first story that's in the Torah? See, the other story happened prior, but it's not in the Torah. This is the first story that's in the Torah. We're taught the other story, but this is the one that's in the Torah. Well, let's figure out. As I mentioned, Abraham is going to be tested, quote-unquote. He's going to go through trials and tribulations. So let's figure out what the test is in each one of these. What was the test of the other story? What was the other story? He was told, bow down to the fire god, or you get thrown into the pit of fire. Now, what had to be going through Abraham's mind when he was being lowered into that fire? Would you be okay? No. Just by knowing you were up there? Huh? <laughs> I hope someone's up there. No. Is my belief worth the possibility of death? The possibility of death? Say it well, stronger, Noriel. Uh, is, is, is knowing what I know yeah. worth dying for? Bingo. Wow. Couldn't have said it better. Is knowing what I know to be true worth dying for? The very first test that we are told, not in the Torah, but the very first lesson we are told about Abraham in the stories that we're told about him is, if you don't know what you're willing to die for, then you haven't begun to live. Knowing what you know, having five-finger clarity, the very first lesson, you know what you need that five-finger clarity on? What's worth dying for? That's the first thing you have to know. Because if you don't know what's worth dying for, you don't know what you're living for. Because there's only one thing that your parents taught you. By osmosis, by default, there is one thing that your parents taught you just by the fact that they brought you into this world. And you know what they taught you? That there's something worth dying for. Because they knew that you would die and they brought you in anyway. You see that? <laughs> you said to him, there's something worth dying for. I'm going to bring you into this world knowing that you're going to die. Because there's something worth dying for. Well, the very first lesson that Judaism is telling us with that story of Abraham is, when he was being lowered into the pit of fire, he's not saying, oh, I'm going to be fine. Sure, no problem. Yeah, throw me in the fire. No! He's saying, I'm going to die. But you know what? I know what it's worth dying for. And values is worth dying for. Standing up for my values is worth dying for. Fighting for the Jewish people is worth dying for. Fighting for humanity is worth dying for. Going to see a sports game, not worth dying for. 
But if we don't know what's worth dying for, then we don't know what's worth living for. If we don't know what we're willing to die for, we haven't begun to live. That was the test that Abraham had to go through. The very first test that Abraham had to go through was, what are you willing to die for, Abraham? Okay, Abraham, you know what you're willing to die for. Beautiful. That was that test. What was the test here? What was the test here? To truly see if he does know what he knows. What do you mean? He knows what he knows. He was willing to die for it. Well, hasn't he, quote unquote, already left? If he's already at that, like, you know, if he's already knows what he's willing to die yeah. for, yeah. hasn't he already left? Yeah. So then what's Abraham? So what's exactly? That's my question. So then what's God telling him to do? Teach it to people. Close. I will bless those who bless you. Who Abraham is being told here, great, now you know what you're willing to die for. You know what you have to do now? Live for it. <laughs> Go for yourself. Go. Leave this behind. Go. Live for it. See, what's harder? What's a greater test? To die for a cause or to live for a cause? To live. See, we think dying for a cause is glamorous. And it is. There is some glory in dying for a cause. But you know what it takes to die for a cause? And I'm not belittling it when I say this. But you know what it takes to die for something? It takes one moment of conviction and bravery. That's it. One moment of solid, clear conviction and bravery. You know what it takes to live for something? A lifetime of conviction. A lifetime of bravery. And that's much harder. To wake up day in and day out with the failures with the confusion that comes to us. Remember we spoke about five-finger clarity. The reason you have to have five-finger clarity is because what constantly is bombarding us? Doubt. Maybe we can't do it. Maybe it's not possible. Oh, I failed so many times before. Why bother now trying again? There's constant doubt that's bombarding us. And it's so much easier to just quit. And just go into the flow of humanity. As Pink Floyd said, just become comfortably numb. <laughs> just go with the flow of humanity. So many people are on the train. How could it be wrong? <laughs> How could something so right feel so wrong? Everybody's doing it. Everybody's on the train of complacency. That must be what life's about. Give me a seat on that. Oh, to live for a cause. To say, no, I'm getting off the train. I'm going to walk. I'm going to walk because there's meaning in walking. I'm going to do something. Ah, but it's so hard. You won't accomplish anything. So what? It's right. If it's right, I have to do it. Well, the only way that I'm going to do that is if I have clarity and conviction that that's right. And that's what Abraham is being told. It's not enough to know what you're willing to die for. That's only the start. And that's why that story is not in the Torah. 
It's not enough to know what you're willing to die for. It's once you've figured out what you're willing to die for, live for it. If a person says that's worth dying, it's worth dying, I'd be willing to take my life to save the Jewish people. So then live to save the Jewish people. <laughs> live for it. I'd be willing to, to give my life to save 50 people. So then live to help 50 people. You hear? Clarity. That's clarity. Live with what you know to be true. That's called being an intellectual. So you, next time someone asks you, are you an intellectual? You know, you'll have a definition. You know what it means to be an intellectual? To live with what you know to be true. That's the definition of an intellectual. To live with what you know to be true. Well, that takes clarity. Five-finger clarity. I know that this is true. Now i got to live it. And that's the first lesson of Abraham. The first lesson of Abraham is five-finger clarity and now live it. All right, next week we'll see the second lesson of Abraham. Hope, it, hope that was enjoyable. How do you, how do you stop this? Throw it. That's what you did. Slide unlock. <laughs>